chapter 12. So, how was your journey, Lara? Oh, good thanks, James. Uh, very comfortable. Plenty of uh, leg room? Oh, goodness, yes. Uh, much more than I usually get. Well, that's, uh, that's first-class travel for you, Lara. I was glad Lara had had a comfortable journey down from London on the train. It was important to look after the talent, and Lara was undoubtedly very talented. We knew that this was the case when Steve and I first auditioned her for the role. We had also watched her being talented on TV and read articles in newspapers and magazines that emphasised just how talented she was. All in all, we were very pleased to get her attached to the film due to her innate talent. It was a shame, then, that in every conversation I had with her agent, Patricia Hughes at Winberg Talent, Patricia wielded this fact like a head-cleaving broadsword. Of course, Lara's very talented, James. Well, yes, she is. And very in demand at the moment. Yes, I'm, I'm sure she is, Patricia. Not just in the UK, but she took a lot of meetings when she was out in Los Angeles for the pilot season. A lot of casting agents wanted to see her, you know. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's great. She's uh, very much on the up, you see, James. Un understood. Which is why, uh, all things considered, we think 8% uh, of net profits is a very reasonable ask. Uh, sorry, Patricia, but I, I, don't, I don't have that sort of percentage to give away. Uh, the most I can go to is, um, is 2%. Oh, I see. Oh, OK, well, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. All right. Uh, can you think about that now, Patricia? We, we really need this sorted before Lara begins work on the film. Which is tomorrow, of course. Yes, tom tomorrow. Hmm, I can see why you're so keen to get the contract signed, James. No contract, of course, no right to use Lara's performance in your little film. Hmm, tricky one. So, uh, any chance we can settle at uh, 2% then? Look, I'll speak to the other agents, James, and get back to you. OK. Um, in the meantime, can we confirm that you're happy to provide first-class rail travel for Lara's trip down? First class? Yes. Uh, uh, sure. OK. And uh, she needs to be back in town by six at the latest because of her show. Yes, I'm, I'm aware of that. Thank you, Patricia. Don't, don't worry. I'll see to it personally. Fucking agents. Actually, that's not totally fair. I had been fortunate with the majority of the agents I had dealt with, as when you don't have the money in the first place, it's relatively easy to say, sorry, but that's all the money we've got, so do feel free to take it or leave it. With Patricia, though, matters were slipping out of hand, and it was my own stupid fault. Even though Lara had loved the script and agreed to work for a very small fee, I hadn't nailed the contract with the agent. Which, when it comes to film producing is one of those fundamental schoolboy errors you really can't afford to commit. No contract, no copyright in the actor's performance, and therefore potentially no sale of the film to a buyer. Unless, of course, you then adopt the draconian measure of cutting out all the scenes featuring that particular actor, which might just transform your lovingly crafted story into an incomprehensible pile of doggy doo. I could have, of course, agreed to Patricia's request for 8% of our net profits and been done with it. But then that would have taken a significant chunk out of our producer share of the profits in the film, which was 40% divided equally between Steve and I. 
In lieu of anything approaching a decent fee, we were both loath to giving any of this away, because if the film became a hit, it was this share that would, in theory, set us up for life. As for Lara, even though she was currently co-starring in a fairly successful BBC sitcom, she wasn't exactly bankable in terms of the box office, and certainly didn't have the cinematic clout of someone like Kate Winslet. As a matter of fact, we would have been happy to have given Ms Winslet 8% of our net profit, because her involvement in our project would have translated into lots of bums on seats in cinemas. Unfortunately, Kate's agent lived in an impregnable fortress guarded by Dementors, so I hadn't even attempted that route. Lara's agent, on the other hand, had been accessible and amenable, at least to begin with, and all had gone tickety-boo until the contractual fun and games had truly begun. Now, with an unsigned contract, and Lara sat beside me in the MPV en route to her first day of filming, Patricia not only had me over a barrel... She also had my pants down and my knob in a vice. Did you um did you enjoy the complimentary breakfast? I asked Lara. Uh, no, I, I, I didn't actually have the breakfast, James. It was a bit too early in the morning for me to eat anything. But I did have a nice cup of green tea. Green tea. Was that it? £120 out of my dwindling budget for a first-class rail ticket, and all Lara could indulge in was green tea. I would have stuffed myself full of complimentary pastries, made myself sick, and then stuffed in some more. Why on earth had I bothered? Oh yes, I remember now. Patricia had my cock in a vice and was slowly flattening it. So I, I hear you get reclining seats in first class, I said. Oh, uh, probably. To be honest with you, James, I I didn't really notice. Didn't notice the reclining seat function on her chair? I wasn't buying that. I bet she played with it all the way up from London. I know I would have done. And especially when the train was pulled up in a station and one was in full view of all those filthy standard class passengers. I would probably have played with it so much that I would have broken the mechanism. And then I would have demanded that my valet or butler, or whatever manservant it is you get to play with in first class, find me another seat and provide suitable compensation for my inconvenience by furnishing me with champagne and oysters. Yep, that's what I would have done given the chance. And then, of course, there's the individual reading light you get with first class, I said, recalling another benefit I had seen on the train booking website. That's uh, that's pretty cool, isn't it, Lara? Uh, yes, I said. Suppose it is, said Lara, shifting uneasily in her seat and giving me a slightly awkward smile. Sadly, and just a bit pathetically, I was determined to make a point about how fortunate Lara was to be travelling first class. It wasn't big, and it certainly wasn't clever, but the whole Patricia situation had really got to me. It wasn't Lara's fault, she seemed perfectly nice, but I didn't like being held to ransom by her agent. There was, of course, another and far more fundamental reason why this, and indeed every other painful situation related to the film, was getting to me. It was simply the fact that two weeks into the shoot, I was exhausted. For 15 hours a day, I was running on a toxic blend of high-octane adrenaline and manic, gut-rotting fear – And what sleep I did manage to get was peppered with ghoulish nightmares in which large trolls with big clubs would chase me around my bedroom. In terms of the filming itself, 
Nothing had gone drastically wrong so far, but we were slipping further and further behind schedule. So much so that it was now very doubtful that we would complete the film in the allotted three weeks. It didn't help matters that Danny and Steve were continually at loggerheads, with Steve attempting to up the tempo on set by applying his bish-bash-bosh directing technique, while Danny yanked hard in the opposite direction as he strove to painstakingly compose every shot as if he were Vermeer. It was a major clash of creative methodology that was regularly plunging the set into acrimony and ultimately slowing the whole filmmaking process down. Ironically, when we interviewed Danny for the role of cinematographer, we had made a big point of emphasising the need for speed on the shoot. At that time, Danny had assured us that he totally got this and it wouldn't be a problem. This had proven to be a complete crock of shite. With everything in full swing, or juddering to a halt, depending on the prevailing mood on set, Danny had morphed into Peter Greenaway and was demanding aesthetic satisfaction on even the most prosaic of shots. For my part, I would increasingly find myself acting as a one-man United Nations peacekeeping force and dash onto set to try and quickly settle disputes. To add to my overall state of knackedness, I was also feeling horribly guilty. One of my best friends, Mike, was getting married that day and despite all my reassurances to him during the week that I would absolutely, definitely, without question, be there to act as his chief usher, I had blown him out. In my defence, I had, until only a couple of days earlier, been intending to go, but then, during an emergency production meeting with Steve, Diane and Lucy, it had been decided that we had no choice but to try and make up some time by shooting on the Saturday. To make matters worse, when I did finally pluck up the courage to speak to Mike, I somehow managed to empty a whole tanker load of fuel onto the fire. Hi Mike, how are you? Yeah, fine thanks James, uh, we missed you at the stag do. <laughs> Shame you couldn't get down last week. Yes, it, it, it would have been great, but you know, just had too much to do in preparation for the film. Sure, so uh, how's that all going, James? Oh, oh, okay, thanks. I'm pretty much fucked all the time, but uh, but we're getting there. So anyway, how about you? Excited, I imagine? Yeah, excited, nervous, you know, with the occasional moment of being shit scared. I just really want this big day to go smoothly, James, you know. Anyway, did you get the um, itinerary I sent through to you okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you don't mind getting to the church, you know, at that time. I'd rather everyone got there a, a bit early, you know, to avoid any last minute travel delays. It'll also give you time to coordinate the ushers and familiarise yourself with the order of service. If you can have a quick word with the vicar, then... Uh, Mike, sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm afraid something's um, come up. Like, like what? Well, um, well, you see, I can't make it. What? Well, you see, the thing is, we're now shooting on Saturday. Oh, for fuck's sake, James, you said you'd keep it free. Yeah, yeah, but you see, the thing is, we, we've now slipped behind schedule. Slipped behind schedule? Who gives a fuck, James? Well, I do, actually. It's my fucking wedding day, mate, the most important day of my life. How could you, how could you let this happen? Look, I'm, I'm really, really sorry, Mike. It's, it's kind of out of my control. But you're the fucking producer, James. It should be in your control. Oh, uh, it's not quite as simple as that. 
Oh, really? That's like a pilot saying he's not in control of his own fucking plane. Well, uh, actually, that's an interesting analogy, Mike, because even though I am indeed the pilot, um, sometimes, you know, forces outside your control, like uh, mechanical failure or uh, tropical storms can... Don't give me that bollocks, James. You've ruined my day. That's what you've done here. Oh, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, Mike. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I mean, it's not as if I'm your best man. What the fuck? You're my chief usher, James. Yeah, but it's not really what could be described as a a key role in a wedding, is it? What are you saying exactly, James? That I should have chosen you over my twin brother to be best man? Is that what you're saying? Hey, steady on, Mike. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm just pointing out that, you know, you'll probably be fine without me. Uh, In fact, I'm sure one of the other ushers will be chuffed to pieces to get a uh, promotion, you know, as it as it as it were. You're fucking unbelievable, James. Do you know that? Look, Mike, I'm genuinely so sorry about this. And, uh, you know, I I hope that you, you both have a fantastic day. Yeah, well, I hope your fucking set burns down. It wasn't exactly a pleasing exchange between us, and I hoped that in time Mike would come to forgive and forget. On reflection, I probably could have done a better job of apologising if I hadn't been a bit more focused on the task. Problem was, when I made the call to him, I was in a pound shop looking for a suitable replacement for a large yellow mug that some dyspraxic actor had broken. Unfortunately, the mug had featured in quite a few shots, and as this turned out to be the only large yellow mug available to us, and Amy, our props girl, couldn't drive, I had been forced to drop everything and speed off to the nearest town to find another one. So, to be fair, not only was I distracted when I made the call, I was also in a bit of a pissy shitty mood. Still, I now fervently wish that I hadn't been so cack-handed in response to Mike's anger. Of course he was going to be mightily pissed off with me. It was his big day, and he wanted me to play a central part in that. Compared to the life-changing significance of his wedding, my filmmaking venture must have seemed like a passing sideshow, entertaining in a light balancing a stick on your forehead while riding a monocycle kind of way, but not the stuff of weight and import. So why did I even entertain the idea that he, or anyone else for that matter, would get it in regard to my slavish obsession with the film? How was Mike to know that for me, making this film wasn't about getting my name in lights or impressing my mum or even making lots of money? It was about something far more essential to my soul. What this something was, I hadn't got a fucking clue, but like the ring in Lord of the Rings, it was a force that had taken possession of me many moons ago and wouldn't now let me go. As we rattled over the cattle grid and headed towards the house through the park, I opted for some Machiavellian brinkmanship in the ongoing battle with Patricia by circumnavigating her altogether and making a direct appeal to Lara. I didn't doubt that this sort of approach breached some sort of unwritten code of conduct in regard to dealing with the talent, but fuck it, I thought. What had I got to lose? as actors are desperately fragile and insecure creatures that hungrily gobble up any crumb of approbation tossed at them, prior to fully unleashing my nifty little outflanking manoeuvre, I decided that I would first soften Lara up with a bit of flattery. I'm really enjoying your sitcom, by the way, Lara. 
Thanks. Here's hoping we get recommissioned for a third series. Oh, I'm sure it will. It's one of the best things on the box at the moment, I said, never having actually seen the show. Well, I'm very glad you like it, said Lara. And I have to say, Lara, that you're easily the best thing in it, I continued, in full blowing smoke up bottom mode. Well, I'm not so sure about that, came Lara's modest reply. No, really, you've got fantastic comic timing, and your deadpan reposts are hilarious. Lara went a satisfying red colour. Gosh, that's very sweet of you, James, she said. So she did do deadpan reposts. That was a lucky bit of bollocks on my part. Steve and I are really pleased and excited to have you on board, Lara. So ended the barrage, and before the smoke could clear, time for the main assault. It's just a shame that we can't get your contract nailed down. Don't get me wrong, Patricia is lovely and only has your best interests at heart, I'm sure. But, you see, we've reached this impasse over the matter of profit share. Right, well, I I try not to get involved in all that sort of things. Um, I'm sure you'll work something out with Patricia. Mm, But that's the problem, Uh, Lyra. We just can't seem to get over this particular stumbling block. Thing is, if we give you a cut of net profits, then we'll have to give a similar cut to all the other principal actors. Otherwise, you know, it just wouldn't be fair to them. Oh, I see, she said thoughtfully. Ha! My argument was working. Her flank had been turned and full capitulation was surely now only a matter of moments away. Well, why don't you do that then, she said. Sorry, do what? Give everyone an equal cut of profits. Well, because if we did that, Lara, it would, uh, you know, drastically reduce our producer share, I said. So you'd get less money? Well, yes, a a lot less. Right, so it's not so much a matter of being fair to the other actors as making sure you protect your own profit. Kaboom, went my petard as I was well and truly hoisted. Look, uh, I'm not being greedy here, I said, trying very hard not to sound greedy. It's just that Steve and I have put in a huge amount of work to get this film up and running, and and, and we do think we deserve the potential payoff. Mm, Well, like I said, probably best if you talk this all through with uh, my agent, Patricia, said Lara. In the uncomfortable silence that followed, I had time to dwell on the fact that not only had I completely underestimated Lara, but I had also grossly overestimated my own skills in the cunning and craftiness departments, On top of this, what if Lara told Patricia about my fumbled attempt at getting around her? What if Lara brought up the whole issue of profit share with the other cast members? And what if this then prompted them to try and renegotiate their contracts? Could they do that? Were we, in fact, being greedy bastards by ring-fencing our 40% cut? Would everyone end up hating me? Would all the actors quit, production grind to halt, and my investors sue me for gross fuckwittery and a general ineptitude? God, I really needed to get a grip. Still, only another 15 hours of slugging it out amongst the mud, barbed wire and mustard gas, and I would be free to slip back to London for a little R&R. Are you right, James? said Lara. Hmm? Me? Oh yeah, fine, thanks. Just uh, mentally gearing up for today's shoot. So, um, do you have any then? Sorry, have any what? I said, realising that during my latest bout of fretful introspection, I had inadvertently zoned Lara out. Green tea? What, on me? No, on location. Oh yes, 
I said with ludicrous optimism. I'm sure we have some. Funnily enough, we did have some green tea. But what we didn't have that morning, however, was a chef. Kevin's not here, said Lucy, swinging open the driver's door while I was still in the process of parking up in front of the house. And uh, good morning to you too, Lucy, I said, aborting my attempt to park neatly and yanking on the handbrake. Lucy, this is uh, Lara. Oh, hi, Lara. Hope you had a good journey, said Lucy with a perfunctory smile and a hasty nod. Yes, thanks. Oh, and wow, what an amazing location, declared Lara. Lucy and I both turned to look at the towering columns of the vast Palladian mansion. It was certainly an impressive frontage, but sadly one that no longer prompted us to gasp with awe. Gasp with dread and foreboding, perhaps, at the thought of the inevitable production horrors that waited in ambush for us, but definitely not awe. I was pleased, though, that Lara was suitably wowed and hoped that this might erase all memory of our talk concerning contracts, net profit share and the abundant privileges of first-class train travel. Don't worry, Lucy, I said, struggling to subdue a niggling thought that had popped into my head. I'm sure Kevin will be here soon. He's probably just stuck in traffic. What? Stuck in traffic at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning? He only lives just down the road, James. Well, maybe he had to pop into Oxford to pick up some uh, fresh herbs or something. Fresh herbs? It's only breakfast, James, and he's hardly Raymond fucking Blanc. Calm down, Lucy, I hissed in reproach. Let's address this situation properly once we've got Lara settled in, shall we? By now, Lara had exited the car and was busy taking pictures of the house with her phone. This was fortunate because I really didn't want her to be privy to the scrappy inner workings of our little production machine. It really irked me that Lucy had to be so bloody noisy about everything, particularly when something bad was brewing up. My niggling thought about our a well chef wasn't going away, and as the three of us made our way to the green room via the resonating vaulted corridors of the ground floor, the nebulous niggling began to solidify into a big, fat, nasty realisation. I think I might know why Kevin isn't here, I said to Lucy. Really? Yes, but don't worry about it. I'll get it sorted. Lucy shot me a piercing glance. You've fucked up, haven't you? She said. Um, yeah. Right, well, my guess is you didn't tell Kevin we were shooting this Saturday. Am I right, James? Uh, yeah. So the culinary cavalry... We'll not be making an appearance any time soon, then, she said, really finding her acerbic stride. Ah, uh, no. So where are you heading now, then? I'm I'm uh, going to the uh, green room. Lucy grabbed my arm and brought me to an abrupt halt. No, James, you're not going to the green room. You're turning round and going back to the car and driving off to the nearest shop to buy breakfast for 30 cast and crew. Right, I said turning round and trudging off back down the corridor. Chapter 13 Everything. I'm sorry? 
everything the lot. The service station cashier continued with her blank, lights are on but nobody's home stare and didn't move. I thought I made it pretty clear what my purchasing intentions were, but obviously the cashier required more of an itemised breakdown before she would slump into action. I'd like all of it, please. The croissant, the pan au chocolat, the sausage rolls, the... Uh, I waved a finger in the direction of some pastries, whatever those things are. Pecan and maple Danish, she said in an impassive monotone. Right, yes, those as well. How about the glazed apple Danishes? Yep, those two. The cashier picked up a pair of metal tongs and began knocking out an annoying rhythm with them. And the cheese, tomato and bacon wraps, she continued, tempted as I was at this point to unleash a burning lava flow of invective in the cashier's direction, I managed to bridle my tongue and gave her a tortured, mm, please, instead. With the speed of an opium-addled koala, the cashier finally began to bag up these sorted pastries and rolls. Meanwhile, a sizable queue of thick-set and hungry-looking men had formed behind me, and as each food display cabinet was systematically emptied, I became aware of a growing murmur of unhappy truckers. But hey, what can I do? I had my own starving brood to deal with back at the ranch. Are you not leaving us with anything, mate? said a particularly large and aggrieved-looking trucker behind me. Sorry, I, I've got a big family to feed, I said, trying not to be intimidated by the man with hands the size of anvils. What, are you a fucking Mormon or something? said the trucker, prompting a wave of sardonic merriment amongst the others. As a matter of fact, I am, actually. I responded stony-faced, but I'm not a fundamentalist Mormon, so I don't believe in polygamy. The trucker looked genuinely dumbfounded by my response. Good, hopefully he and the others would be shamed by their anti-Mormonistic prejudices and grant me safe passage back to the car. Where's your pony and trap then? said another trucker. Uh, that's actually Amish? I'm Mormon and have no problem whatsoever with using automotive transport. Oh, right. In the face of a potentially sticky situation, my abrupt, and some might say self-serving, conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was working a treat. The truckers, hungry as they were, didn't dare go any further down the rocky road of religious bigotry. Umpteen bags of fresh-ish foodstuffs later, and I had successfully cleaned out this particular service station of all breakfast-related goodies. All I had to do now was to race back to the house and refuel the troops. I'd been gone for 45 minutes now, which was plenty enough time for the crew to have taken matters into their own hands and raided Sir Hugh's larder. It was a worrying thought, and I half imagined returning to the green room and discovering Toby roasting a pheasant on a spit or, worse still, one of Sir Hugh's peacocks. As I attempted to ease the MPV out of the garage forecourt, I began to sense that something was fundamentally awry with the vehicle. I was no mechanic, but the steering felt uncomfortably heavy all of a sudden. Furthermore, I noticed that the trucker with anvil-shaped hands was pointing at my front near-side wheel and mouthing something along the lines of wheel and fucked. He was also looking decidedly cheery. I stopped the car and got out to investigate. As it turned out, the trucker's diagnosis was spot on. The tyre was well and truly fucked.
big hairy bollocks, I muttered while giving the wheel a good hearty kick. The trucker, basking and schadenfreude, lingered for a moment to watch me vent my spleen. All right, I said, staring defiantly back at him. Yeah, you? (laughs) He chuckled, full of the joys of karmic retribution. I parked up and set about trying to locate the carjack. I had never changed a tyre before, but I had a strong notion that a carjack was somehow involved. The problem was, when I finally managed to rip open the panel that housed the spare wheel, the jack wasn't there. My phone rang. It was Lucy. How are you getting on? She said. Well, the good news is that I've bought enough food to feed a small army. There was a pause as I sensed that Lucy really didn't want to hear where this was leading. And the bad? She said finally. I've got a puncher and uh, I can't find the car, Jack. Fucking fantastic, said Lucy. Yeah, tell me about it. I don't suppose you've got any idea where the Jack might be. Have you tried looking under the chaise long? The chaise long? Yes, you know, that priceless antique lounger we broke on the first day of shooting. Oh, that chaise long. Shit, I'd forgotten we'd used the Jack on that. I shuddered as I recalled the damage we had inflicted on the 18th century seat. I then shuddered some more as I recalled the additional damage we had inflicted on the seat while attempting to cover up the original damage. Look, Lucy, can you drive out here with your car, Jack? I'm at the service station on the A34. It'll only take you 20 minutes. Can't you just borrow Jack off someone there? I looked over to where Anvil Man had been joined by a number of the other hungry truckers. They were all staring at my punctured tyre and grinning. Somehow I couldn't imagine any of them giving me a helping hand. I don't think it's going to be very easy borrowing a jack, Lucy. All right, I'm on my way. Forty-five minutes later, and Lucy was perched on a bollard with a half-eaten Danish pastry in one hand and a car manual in the other. I, meanwhile, stood nearby hopelessly yanking at a recalcitrant wheel nut with a spanner. This was my first ever attempt at any kind of car maintenance, and I vowed, there and then, that it would be my last. Are you sure you're turning it counterclockwise? said Lucy. Yes, I snarled. Of course I am. It's this bloody spanner. Wrench, Lucy corrected. What? I said. Well, according to the manual, said Lucy, waving the book in my direction, it's called a wrench. Right, okay, well, it's this fucking piece of shit wrench that's the problem. It might just about be usable for some eight-year-old's Meccano set, but it sure as bollocks isn't up to the job of getting these wheel nuts off. Do you want another pan of chocolate? said Lucy, proffering one of the breakfast bags in my direction. No, I'm fine, thank you, I snapped. Just thought it might help with your blood sugar levels, James. My blood sugar levels are fine, thank you, Lucy. It's this fucking toy wrench that's the problem. Well, according to the manual, continued Lucy, if you're having a problem loosening the nuts, then it might be worth using a cross wrench, as this provides more torque, apparently. I put my futile, sweaty exertions on hold and turned to face Lucy. Do you even know what a cross wrench is, Lucy? I said. Nope, but I thought that you might. What, because I'm a man? Oh, yes, exactly. Look, Lucy, just because I'm a bloke, it doesn't mean I'm genetically programmed to know how to wield power tools. A a small wrench is hardly a power tool, James, squealed Lucy in an explosion of laughter and Danish pastry flakes. It was a rare treat to see Lucy laugh, 
Well, it would have been a treat if I hadn't been so possessed of such a disgustingly foul and mean-spirited mood by this point. I had, in fact, only seen Lucy laugh once before, and that was on the first day of pre-production, when she had attempted to squeeze onto one end of my tiny desk in my equally tiny box room. After banging laptops, knees, elbows and finally heads, the ludicrousness of our restricted workspace had prompted her to collapse into a fit of unbridled giggles. Far from being irritated, I had embraced such carefree joviality in my new co-worker and inwardly rejoiced at the prospect of us both giggling and guffawing our way through the coming weeks of filmmaking. Oh, what joyous japery and boundless quippery we would have together! Not only would we be creating a classic film that would, undoubtedly, find its rightful way into the pantheon of cinematic greats, but we would also be having such a terrific lark making it. Extraordinary, really, how utterly, deeply and over-fucking-whelmingly wrong one can be sometimes. For Christ's sake, this sort of thing just isn't in my skill set, I squawked. I'm meant to be doing film producer stuff. I'm, I'm meant to be on set overseeing the creation of a motion picture. But instead, where do I find myself? Here, on the forecourt of a fucking petrol station covered in grit and oil. You're not exactly covered in oil, James, said Lucy, struggling to contain her mirth in the face of my rapidly evolving tantrum. You've just got a little bit of muck on your hands, that's all. Resisting the temptation to knock Lucy off her bollard and force-feed her the car manual, I turned my attention back towards the wheel. Right, you little fucker, it's showtime! Using both hands and putting all my weight behind the wrench, I started to bounce up and down on the tool. Come on, you utter cunt! I shouted at the immovable nut. Go steady there, James, said Lucy, visibly alarmed by the manic fervour I was employing in my latest assault on the wheel. It's not worth spraining your wrist over. But she was wrong. It was worth spraining my wrist over because I sure as hell hadn't slogged my way through ten days of filming and ten weeks of pre-production and two years of development and fifteen years of floundering around in a rudderless ship piled high with rotting ambitions to now be defeated by a sodding bastard nut. I was like a pugnacious reveller on a Friday night in Grimsby totally wired up for a fight with whoever, or whatever, stood in my way. If that obstacle happened to be a wheel nut on a 2013 Ford Galaxy, then so be it. It didn't matter, for I now understood what it would take to get this film completed. Dogged perseverance, verging on barking mad obsession, verging on white-knuckled frothing-at-the-mouth tenacity. Indeed, the sort of deranged tenacity that a terrier displays when it refuses to unlock its teeth from someone's ankle, even though it is simultaneously having the living crap kicked out of it. Hey, I think it's starting to shift, I called out, sensing victory. At which point, the wrench sprang out of my hands and I fell headfirst into the wheel arch. You're right, said Lucy, jumping up and hurrying over to me. I'm fine, I'm fine, I protested, waving her away. Though I, I think I might just sit down here for a moment and uh, get my breath back. With the support of the car behind me, I slowly eased myself down onto the tarmac. You've cut yourself, said Lucy, pointing at my forehead. Have I? I said, feeling for the wound. Ah oh, yes, so I have. I noticed a smudge of blood on my fingertips. Look, don't move and I'll go and get the first aid kit out of my car. Listen, Lucy, don't worry about me. I'm sure it's only a scratch. You virtually head-butted the car, James. You know, you might even have concussion. 
Lucy's concern for me was rather touching and, truth be told, pretty unexpected. I had become so accustomed to the adversarial dynamic of our working relationship that it was good to know that beneath all the bluff and bluster there glowed a warm and compassionate heart. Lucy, don't worry about me. Just get the breakfast back to the troops, I said, holding up my bloodied fingertips for dramatic effect. Remember, our priority is to keep the filmmaking machine rolling, whatever the cost. Are you for real, James? cried Lucy. What's with all this melodramatic whatever-the-cost bollocks? We're making a low-budget film, not building a fucking cathedral. And, for the record, you've banged your head, James, not stopped a bullet. Oh, but what if I do have concussion? I said. You'll survive, she replied. Now, move out of the way and let me have a go with that wrench. We've wasted enough time dicking around here. And with that, normal production manager service was resumed. Holding a tissue to my head wound, I walked over to Lucy's polo to see if I could dig out a suitably large and heroic-looking bandage from her first aid kit. On the way, my phone rang. Hello? Hi, Jones. It's, it's Carol here. Ah, uh, oh, right. Uh, hello, Carol, I said, completely nonplussed. How's the filming going? Uh, fine, thanks. So, uh, have you had time to talk to your director about a possible role for me in your film, said Carol. I phoned you a few times this week, but you've obviously been too busy to answer. I inputted Carol, actress, who I might have had a drunken flirt with, into my mental search engine, but nothing came up. Not yet, no, I replied. It's just that if you do sort me out a part, then I'll have to give my landlord sufficient notice to cover my shifts. Oh, barmaid Carol. The Carol that Andy was dribbling all over the last, and so far only, time I had managed to get down to the local pub. The Carol who I had unwittingly given my mobile number to in the idiotic hope that she might bend the licensing rules by half a millimetre so that I could enjoy a well-deserved drink at the end of one of the most stressful days of my life. That Carol. Please can customers refrain from using their mobile phones on the garage forecourt. Thank you. I couldn't work out if the PA announcement was directed at me or not, but it was a good excuse to extricate myself. Look, Carol, it's a, it's a bit tricky to talk right now. Oh, right. Shall I call you back later then? Uh, no, I think it's probably best if I give you a call, I said, attempting to wrestle back control of this bizarre little charade of ours. Really, I should have just told Carol there and then that there wasn't ever going to be a role for her in our film. It would certainly have been the simplest and most effective way of dealing with the situation. But instead, I left the door wide open with a big stalker's welcome sign above it as I continued to say, I'll need to run it past the director and my production manager first, Carol, you know, to uh, to get their angle on it. To get their angle on it? What on earth possessed me to say that? I knew what Steve's angle would be. No, James, I can't see any role that the local barmaid could play in the film. We're fully cast, and even if we weren't, she's a barmaid, James. Why do they have to be so pointlessly and excruciatingly polite about things like this? Why couldn't I just throw off my uber English shackles and say, I'm sorry, Carol, but we don't have a role that is suitable for you. Jeez, not exactly a tricky sentence to deliver. That's brilliant. Big thanks for that. Carol gushed. I'll be in touch. Well, actually, like I said, it's best if a screech of feedback from the PA obliterated the rest of my sentence. There then followed the sound of someone tapping the microphone and mumbling, 
One, two, one, two, before announcing. Could the uh, gentleman standing by the blue polo please refrain from using his mobile phone on the forecourt? Thank you. I estimated that I was a good 30 feet away from the pumps, which, by my humble reckoning, put me way beyond representing a clear and present danger to the petrol tanks. Arguably, as I now sported a small head wound, there was the possibility that the cashier mistook me for a mentally unhinged former member of an elite US Special Forces unit skilled in all manner of urban sabotage. So, to reassure him that I wasn't, in fact, Rambo, I gave the cashier a big jolly wave and then, in true Marcel Marceau style, performed an exaggerated impression of a suitably chastised man hanging up his phone and tucking it away safely in his coat. To round things off, I then took a big, yes, I am now really taking the piss, bow. When I stood back up again, I caught the eye of a short, stocky man in a high-visibility jacket walking slowly away from the garage shop towards the lorry park. I couldn't help but notice that he was watching me with an interesting mix of savage disdain and filthy contempt. Perhaps, I considered, this just happened to be his default face. Some people have happy smiley faces, whereas others are born with I'm-going-to-fuck-you-up faces. Maybe he just possessed the latter version. But then I caught a glimpse of his hands. They were disproportionately huge. Shit. What if he was related to the anvil-handed trucker? And what if the latter had shown him some incriminating photos of me swarming like a rampaging locust through the cafe? What if hell hath no fury, like a trucker deprived of his breakfast? I watched the short, scary trucker clamber back into his cab and drive off. I really, really hoped that he wouldn't be popping up in my rear-view mirror any time soon. A couple of minutes of foraging later, and I found the first aid kit. After checking myself out in the vanity mirror, I was slightly disappointed to discover that the cut on my forehead was more modest than I had first imagined. Still, if I smeared the blood about a bit, then it did look quite dramatic. Perhaps not winged by a bullet from an AK-47 assault rifle dramatic, which would have been cool, but hopefully enough to gain some collective sympathy. The crew weren't overly chuffed to be filming on the Saturday. Danny, for example, was livid. Quell surprise. So anything I could use to wring out some extra drops of goodwill from them was always going to be a bonus. Hey, it might even help with Anne. Unfortunately, Anne and I had continued to have a series of awkward, strained and, to be quite honest, fucking awful telephone conversations. The continuously shitty mobile phone coverage wasn't helping, but nor was the fact that phoning her had become so perfunctory. I knew this was a bad thing. I knew that she somehow felt threatened by my obsessive focus on making the film and just needed a bit of reassurance. But contacting her had become, to my shame, just another chore, another box that needed ticking. So hopefully, if I turned up home that evening looking a bit beaten and bloody, Anne might think, Ah, my battle-scarred conquering hero has returned. As opposed to, Ah, my useless, selfish fuckwit of a boyfriend has finally resurfaced. Anyway, I could but hope. Having tried on a couple of plasters and found them seriously wanting in the battle-scarred hero department, I was halfway through wrapping a gauze bandage around my forehead when the phone rang again. 
It was Steve. James, where on earth are you? He said. Still at the garage, Steve. Um, I got a puncher and then I couldn't find the car jack. Uh, so, so Lucy brought one down. Uh, but then I banged my head trying to get the bloody wheel knots off. So now, well, I could really deal with you here right now, said Steve, interrupting me mid-prattle. Danny's refusing to set up for the first shot. Don't worry, I'm going to send Lucy back with breakfast as soon as. You know what Danny's like, Steve. I'm sure he'll be more amenable with some grub in him. It's not lack of food that's the problem, James. He, along with everyone else, has already had breakfast. The problem is he's been particularly prima donna-ish today. And it's driving not just me, but everyone else as well, completely bloody nuts. Hang on a minute, I said, struggling to compute something that Steve had just glossed over. Did you say everyone's already had breakfast? Yeah, we got fed up with waiting for you, so Andy popped down to Sainsbury's and got some nosh. There's a Sainsbury's nearby? Yeah, didn't you know? There's a big one just five minutes down the road. I'm surprised you didn't go there, to be honest. Anyway, the breakfast fuck-up really isn't a concern anymore. What is a concern, however, is how we're going to get Danny's ass into gear. We've got some serious making up to do today, James. OK, don't worry, Steve. I'll be back as soon as I can. I looked into the vanity mirror and saw what appeared to be a Sikh gentleman staring back at me. Actually, maybe more like a trainee Sikh with very poor cloth winding skills, as the turban type thing I had created on my head wasn't quite cutting it as either a religious headdress or a first aid dressing. It was marginally less ridiculous than the pantomime pirate beard that I had worn on D-Day, but that really wasn't saying very much. Mind you, this physical manifestation of ridiculousness complemented perfectly the prevailing wind of pointlessness that now howled around inside my head. Andy had got breakfast. If I had had even a trace element of humour left in me, I would have fairly shat myself with laughter at this irony. As it was, my comedy cupboard, like the food shelves in the service station, was bare. So again, for the cheap seats at the back. Andy had got breakfast. I looked over to where Lucy was finishing off changing the wheel. Clever girl. I desperately wanted to believe that my previous efforts had somehow loosened the wheel nuts, paving the way for her to steal my glory. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that I had even failed in achieving that. Some days just don't quite happen. By now it was 9.30 and therefore officially light, and yet with the sky a grubby shade of grey, it felt as if Saturday the 3rd of February just really couldn't be asked to make an appearance. It was a non-day. The sort of day that only a fool would try and make something out of. I was convinced that, try as I might, this particular Saturday just wasn't going to work for me on any level whatsoever. It was a day only fit for wraiths and half-formed creatures with half-baked plans that would never, ever work. With the seriously tempting thought of handing command over to Lucy for the rest of the day's shoot and fucking off home to London, I decided that it might be time to raid Lucy's secret Siggy stash, which I had stumbled upon while searching for the first aid kit. With my self-esteem flatlining and my desire to burn down the M40 towards the metropolis growing feverishly strong, I certainly felt that I qualified for some emergency self-medication. 
It was remarkable that since my failure to bum a smoke-off Don two weeks earlier, I hadn't already succumbed to the evil weed. But this may have been more down to a lack of opportunity than a question of willpower. Pretty much every time I had been tempted to join Toby or Tom for a sneaky fag, some bitch of a production issue would call out to me, Oi, Sunderland, you man-whore! Get your ass over here and service me! But I was now safely cocooned away in Lucy's car, a dozen miles away from the insatiable demands of a needy production. It was the perfect time and place to fall off the wagon. I eagerly stripped away the protective packaging of the Marlborough carton and then, with one deft flick at the bottom of the box, nudged one of the cigarettes upwards so that it was protruding a couple of centimetres above the others. After such a hopeless beginning to the day, it was gratifying to know that, even after three non-smoking years, I hadn't lost this little ritualistic skill. I drew the packet up to my face and lightly teased out the exposed cigarette with my lips. It felt perfectly natural to have the cancer stick just hanging there from my mouth. It was like rediscovering a much-loved old leather jacket that had been exiled to the back of the wardrobe. What a perfect fit, like a second skin, and how familiar and reassuring was the smell of rolled tobacco, arsenic and formaldehyde. Mmm, yummy. I took hold of the lighter and flicked the flint with my thumb. It didn't spark. I continued flicking, but still no flame ignited. Oh, come on, I grumbled. I tapped the lighter. I shook the lighter. I cursed the lighter, invoking a wide range of evil deities, but still nothing doing. Oh, for fuck's sake, I finally spat, while bouncing the lighter off the dashboard at such an angle that it ricocheted past my head and onto the back seat. It was like the wheel nut all over again. It was like the breakfast debacle all over again. It was like so many fucking demoralising, stressful and just plain irritating things that were plaguing the shoot. It isn't the big stuff. It's the minutia of life that gets you in the end. The grinding attrition of petty annoyances that whittle relentlessly away at your soul. Smoking is strictly forbidden anywhere on the garage forecourt came the emphatic and near-shrill voice of the cashier over the PA. Oh, fuck off, you fucking jobsworth, I shouted in the direction of the cashier, while pointedly reinforcing my thoughts on the matter by stabbing the cigarette defiantly in the air. The fucking thing isn't even lit, you stupid fuck-face fucker! I hoped that even from over 40 feet away and through numerous panes of glass, the cashier would still pick up on something of the fuck-you vibe that I was sending his way. There was an abrupt knock on the driver's side window. I swung round to see Lucy staring, open-mouthed, in at me. Having been on the receiving end of a number of Lucy looks in the last few weeks, e.g. the dagger look, the incredulous look, the incredulous dagger with the barely disguised contempt look, I was fairly inured by now to her repertoire of withering stares. But this time, presented with my blood-smeared face, ludicrous turban and a foul-mouthed tirade of epically comic proportions, she appeared to be struggling with some contrary emotions. Indeed, it was very hard to tell whether she wanted to laugh like an imbecile or staple my ears to my feet. I wound down the window. Is it all fixed then? I said. What? The bandages? Why? Lucy barely replied. 
Oh, yes, this, I said, patting my turban. I got a bit carried away. And the blood? Have you been smearing it, James? A bit, I replied. Again, why? I shrugged my shoulders like a surly teenager. Because I wanted to, I mumbled into my chest. Lucy looked down and clocked the open packet of cigarettes. With the flick of an unseen switch, she moved seamlessly into dagger mode. Hang on a minute, are those my emergency bulb lights? Uh, yes. Uh, given how this morning's turning out, Lucy, I thought you wouldn't mind if I took one. Fucking unbelievable, she said, slipping up a gear into incredulous dagger with barely disguised contempt territory. You haven't got another lighter, though, have you? I asked. I think this one's buggered. No, I haven't, she screamed. And anyway, this is a fucking petrol station, James. Do you really want to top this morning's fiasco off with a fucking fireball? I was just about to point out to Lucy just how unlikely such an event would be, given my distance from the pumps, my safe isolation within the confines of the car, and the near impossibility of igniting petrol with a lit cigarette when there was a knock on the passenger side window. I looked across and saw a young, spotty male in an ill-fitting yellow polo shirt and baseball cap. I wound down the window. Hello, can I help? I said. Sorry, sir, but you you can't smoke on the forecourt. Ah, this must be the cashier who had been haranguing me on the PA. I put his age somewhere in the low teens. <laughs> but look, Nigel, I said, having spotted his ID badge. It's not lit. But you were trying to light it, were you not? said Nigel, sounding annoyingly grown up for someone whose balls were yet to drop. Well, maybe, I replied, continuing with my stroppy teen impersonation. But how would you know? And unless you've got a pair of bloody binoculars up there in your watchtower. It's the CCTV, sir. It has zoomable capabilities, he replied with an intensely smug grin. Zoomable capabilities? I'll give you zoomable capabilities, I snapped, incensed by the nerve of this young lad in his stupid toy town uniform. I desperately wanted to grab him by his cheap polyester collar and scream in his ear, Don't you know who I'm going to be? I'm going to be a much-lauded, multi-award-winning film producer. And I'm going to be rich, do you hear? Rich! But I didn't, thankfully. James, let's just go, shall we? said Lucy. No, I demand to see the manager, I announced. I am the manager, declared Nigel. You're kidding, right? I mean, you're wearing a frigging baseball cap, for Christ's sake. James, let it go, will you? said Lucy. We need to get back to base with this bloody breakfast. Actually, Lucy, there's no rush, and he's already sorted it. What? said Lucy. I reached over and retrieved the lighter from the back seat. Holding it up to the end of the cigarette, I began flicking the flint again. Despite being harassed from both sides now, I wasn't going to be distracted from my primary task, which was to reacquaint myself with the pleasures of smoking again. It was a modest ambition, but hopefully something that even I could achieve. James, what do you mean? Andy sorted it, continued a dumbstruck Lucy. I kept on flicking the lighter. You really need to put that down, sir, demanded Nigel reinforcing this request by a very deliberate turning round of his hat by a full 180 degrees. I wondered whether this was some sort of assertiveness ploy he had picked up during his training. I flicked the lighter. 
Come on, God, I thought. Give me a sodding spark. More than anything in the world right now, I needed a big slug of nicotine. Come on, prove to me, O creator of the universe, that you are not a figment of our collective imaginations and give me a goddamn fucking light. And lo, there was light. No, really, it was a bona fide miracle. All of a sudden, I was holding a divine spark in my hands. Perhaps my faux conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wasn't so faux after all. Perhaps, faced with having my arms being pulled out by a pack of hungry truckers, God hadn't begrudged me a little bit of religious pragmatism on my part. I'm warning you, sir, don't do it, said Nigel. Despite the flame being a mere inch away from the cigarette, I paused. There was something about Nigel's demand that unnerved me. I shifted my focus away from the lighter towards the boy. Fuck me, I said, instinctively letting God's eternal flame go out and dropping the unlit cigarette onto my lap. The cashier had both his hands wrapped around the handle of a stun gun. A stun gun that happened to be pointed directly at my head. Jesus, is that a taser? said Lucy. Yes, affirmed the cashier, his voice quivering. Now, sir, I'd I'd like you to hand me the lighter and then slowly step out of the car. It appeared that I had inadvertently been transported into a game of Grand Theft Auto with Nigel co-starring as a fuck-with-me-and-your-fried LAPD officer. It was beyond surreal. I looked down at the unlit cigarette that was resting on my lap. God, even more than ever, I really needed to start smoking again. How on earth do people cope with all the slings, arrows and stun guns of outrageous fortune without them? That blood, it's his own, you know, said Lucy, keen to allay any suspicions that the cashier might have had that I was midway through some sort of mad killing spree. Oh, for God's sake, Lucy, he's a service station cashier, not a bloody cop, I said, attempting to drag us all back into the vague realms of reality. Um, actually, I'm the manager. Nigel corrected, his trigger finger beginning to spasm. Given the fact that 50,000 volts were at his command, I figured it might be time to mollify and not antagonise. OK, Nigel, OK, I said, handing the lighter over to Nigel and attempting to bend myself into a convincingly penitent pose. You're the manager and I shouldn't have tried to light up on your forecourt. Or used your phone, Nigel added or used my phone, I repeated through somewhat gritted teeth. Now, please, Nigel, do you mind just lowering the weapon? It's not a weapon, sir, said Nigel, looking genuinely put out by my description. It's a pacifier. Oh, there was no way I was having that. Sod the risk of being toasted by a 12-year-old. Bollocks, matey, it's a fucking weapon. And as far as I know, Nigel, totally illegal in this country. My vehemence seemed to trigger a degree of self-doubt in Nigel, and he began to slowly lower the taser. Well, I, I know it's not exactly standard issue for someone in my position to carry one of these, Nigel said, at pains to explain himself. But you see, we had a bit of a run-in with this customer not that long ago, and so I, I went online and... Are you taking the piss, Nigel? I interrupted. 
Of course a taser isn't going to be standard issue for a service station cashier. You shouldn't be allowed anything more dangerous than a bloody blunt pencil. An image of the gun-toting extortionist farmer from a previous encounter flashed up in my head. I mean, for God's sake, Nigel, what is it with you country folk and all this fucking weaponry? Manager, shouted Lucy. The force and belatedness of Lucy's outburst surprised us all. This this gentleman is the service station manager, James, not cashier, continued Lucy a little less loudly. Please give him the respect that he's due. Oh, I got it. Lucy was humouring the guy in an attempt to disarm him. Or at least I hoped that's what she was indeed up to. Thank you, Nigel said, grateful for Lucy's acknowledgement. You're welcome, she said. Nigel looked thoughtfully down at the taser for a couple of moments before looking back at me. Are you sure it's illegal? Yes, I answered as unequivocally as I thought humanly possible. Nigel made a small plaintive sigh. Right, well, I suppose I'd better not use it then. Probably for the best, said Lucy, looking extremely relieved. Nigel was halfway through tucking the taser safely away again when my phone rang. Instinctively, I pulled it out of my jacket to answer it. What are you doing? said Nigel, bringing the taser back up into view. I looked at the phone. It was Anne. Look, I've, I've just got to take this call, Nigel. I won't be a tick. James, can't it wait? said Lucy, alarmed by Nigel's renewed antagonism. But it couldn't wait. For the first time in days, I actually had some decent reception on my phone and I wasn't going to squander it. Fuck Nigel. Fuck Lucy's concerns about Nigel. In fact, fuck the film. Right here, right now, I had the opportunity to do the right thing and begin the process of repairing some badly damaged bridges. For too long, I'd let the film blind me to Anne's needs. The least I could do was put everything else to one side for just a few moments and give her the attention she deserved. I pushed the accept call button on the phone. Hey Anne, how are you? I said, with an ebullience that seemed to confuse her. Uh, Fine thanks, she answered after a short delay. Hang up the phone, demanded Nigel, waving the taser in my face, or I really will discharge this device at you. Sorry Anne, can you just give me a moment? I placed my hand over the speaker and turned to face Nigel. Nigel, will you please just calm down and just just think about what you're doing for a moment. You must see that there's a far greater risk of you blowing up the garage using that thing than there is of me using this phone. You couldn't seriously dispute my logic, but by now Nigel had stepped over some invisible line and was no longer functioning in the real world. I wondered what had caused such a meltdown. Too much exposure to petrol fumes, perhaps, or maybe just too much exposure to the general public. If it was the latter, then he had my sympathies. At the risk of sounding misanthropic, humanity is fine, but only in moderation, and certainly best avoided if served up to you in a never-ending queue demanding crisps, scratch cards, and 25-gram packs of Golden Virginia. Anyway, at least I could take comfort from the fact that I wasn't the only one in danger that day of losing the plot. I'll count to ten, and if you haven't hung up, I promise you, I will fire, said Nigel. Actually, this really wasn't worth it. Nigel was obviously teetering on some kind of colossal breakdown, and it just wasn't worth the risk of having my brain lobotomized. Time to wrap this up for good. Okay, Nigel, I'll hang up, I assured him. I took my hand away from the speaker. Sorry, Anne, but I've got to go. Oh, for fuck's sake, James, what is it this time? 
Has one of your precious actors stubbed a toe? Does your cameraman's arse need wiping? Actually, Anne, there's this service station cashier. Manager! yelled Nigel and Lucy in unison. Sorry, service station manager. And he's threatening to zap me with a taser gun unless I hang up right now. Are you being serious, James? Oh, yes. Really? That's your excuse? Well, I I know it's hard to believe, Anne, but... Oh, my God, of all the bullshit you've ever flung my way, that has got to be the most fucking pathetic. Right. Well, if you don't believe me, Anne, you can speak to him directly yourself. And with that, I put the phone on speaker and thrust it towards Nigel. In response, Nigel looked totally bewildered, but then, egged on by both Lucy and I, he leaned in towards the phone and introduced himself. Uh, Hello, uh, this is Nigel Stanley here, uh, manager of the Stanlake service station. Oh, hello, Nigel. And how are you? said Anne. Uh, Fine, thanks. So, uh, Nigel, is it true that you have, at this moment, a taser gun pointed at my boyfriend's head? Uh, Yes, that, that is indeed true. And may I ask why? Well, he has, um, well, he has been contravening health and safety regulations. So you've thought you'd respond by firing a taser at him then? Well, uh, get a grip, Nigel. Tasers are illegal, and if you did indeed fire one at him, then you would A, be arrested, and B, have your head kicked in by yours truly, because, Nigel, causing acute momentary pain to my boyfriend is a privilege that is reserved strictly for me. Is that understood? Uh, yes, uh, understood, said Nigel, sounding utterly crushed. When Anne got on a roll, she was unstoppable, like a force of nature, like a mighty castration machine. Right, well, can you pass me back to my boyfriend, please? Sure, squeaked Nigel. James, we'll talk about this when you get home, shall we? Sure, squeaked I. (laughs) 